This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good morning, and welcome to this Policy Circle call with the experts. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at Rand. Today, we'll be discussing the future of healthcare reform. These calls are one of the many benefits of being a Policy Circle Rand Next or Next Leaders member. We thank you for your support. Congress has left Washington for a two-week recess without passing a long-promised replace and repeal of the ACA. The White House and GOP leaders have vowed to continue efforts to overhaul the health care law. Joining me to discuss the continuing drama is RAND senior economist Christine Eibner. Good morning, Chrissy. Hi. Chrissy also serves as director of RAND Compare, a project that uses economic modeling to predict how individuals and employers will respond to major health policy changes, and she's Associate Director of the RAND Health Services Delivery Systems Program. Christy, let's start with the latest and, in a sense, the most essential. Does health care reform have a chance or to repeal and replace dead? Well, I don't think it's dead, um, but it has been more of a challenge than I think anyone would have expected um, after the election in November. Um, so as you know, uh, the vote had to be pulled on March 24th. Um, you know, there was a replacement bill that's been circulating and it didn't have the support in Congress to, to pass, so the vote was pulled. Um, since then, there have been negotiations to try to get more support from the Freedom Caucus, for example, um, and those efforts failed again last week. Um, yet we still can hear proposals bubbling up um, on how to reach more consensus around what to do. So the discussion is still going on, but at this point there's no consensus on how to move forward. Is it even essential that the law be changed? Uh, I mean, obviously politically it may be, but maybe a lot could be done without changing the law itself. The Trump administration has already signaled it's done, it has already done things to hobble Obamacare. Well, the question is what is the goal? Um, you know, if the goal is to get support more support for a repeal measure uh, by making the current law not work as well. I mean, that would be possible. Um, you know, the ACA's marketplaces were struggling, I think it's fair to say, before Trump took office. Um, you know, enrollees were sicker than, than insurance companies had predicted, and that had led to losses and premium increases. It's possible that that situation um, could have corrected itself over time as insurers gained more experience with the market. Um, but but I think right now, with the Trump administration and the possibility of repeal and replace, insurance companies are faced with more uncertainty than they were before, and that's going to lead to uh, challenges going forward. Why is it so challenging to change the health care law? I mean, obviously, it's, it's complicated, but uh, is it because of this uncertainty or confusion about exactly what the goals are for reform? Well, right. I think one issue is that there's uncertainty on what the goals are, or confusion or, or lack of consensus on the goals. The other issue that I think has been challenging is that the ACA has made some changes that people really do appreciate, and that's been sort of, there's been bipartisan support. So 20 million additional people have insurance coverage. I think there's widespread support for maintaining that increase in insurance coverage that we've seen. Um, insurance companies are no longer able to deny coverage or charge people higher premiums based on pre-existing conditions. That's another thing that, that many people across both sides of the aisle uh, are supportive of. Um, kids can stay on their parents' plans until age 26. The, the challenge is that it's hard to keep those popular provisions um, while 
addressing the unpopular provisions. And I think that's where we get into a lot of uh, difficulty about how do you make very tough choices that could involve um, getting rid of some of the more popular parts of the law along with the unpopular parts. When you talk about these popular parts, are you, and you say on both sides of the aisle, do you mean politicians and what you're hearing them say, or do you mean surveys of the public? So a lot of this is coming from surveys of the public. So the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, runs very regular surveys of public opinion around provisions of the Affordable Care Act. And one of the findings is that many of the individual provisions are quite popular. So Medicaid expansion is actually, you know, popular by by a majority of people. One thing that is very popular is the guaranteed issue provision, and that's the provision that insurance companies can't deny coverage or charge higher prices to people based on health status. What we know is very unpopular is the individual mandate requiring Mm -hmm. people to buy health insurance or pay a fine. The ACA establishes certain essential health benefits. Mm -hmm. Is it uh, presumably going to be difficult to eliminate them? Right. It it will be difficult to eliminate them without changing the law because the essential health benefits, so those are 10 categories of health benefits that must be provided, um, and those are codified in the law. So to get rid of them whole cloth, it would require new legislation. Um, I think there's discussion about could the guardrails or the regulations about exactly what is in and out of the essential health benefits be modified, and I think that's possible. Um, But I think too much adjustment could open the doors for a lawsuit because it is right now part of the law that uh, the essential health benefits are provided. What other changes could you foresee beyond changing the law? Right. Well, there are a few things that, that the Trump administration could do or not do, um, you know, to make the law as it is work better or or work not as well. So one is there's an ongoing lawsuit related to the cost-sharing reductions. Mm -hmm. This is a, you know, it seems kind of arcane, but it really is actually quite important. These are uh, a different form of subsidy to help people pay for their co-pays and deductibles, uh, basically. Lower-income people who have tax credits on the ACA's health insurance exchanges. Hmm. Um, and so that's $7 billion in money that's being provided to insurance companies. Uh, so the, it, it's to support low-income people, but the money goes to the insurance company. Right now, there's a law about whether the appro- that money was never officially appropriated by Congress. And so the House is suing the administration, saying that, you know, those... Prior administration. Well, they started by suing the prior administration, but now it's the Trump administration that's left to defend it. So they actually, the lawsuit's name has been changed from House versus Burwell to House versus Price, uh, reflecting Tom Price, the, the mm-hmm, new secretary mm-hmm. of HHS. So if that lawsuit, um, if the administration stops defending that lawsuit, it's possible that this $7 billion can come out of the individual market. That'll leave insurance companies holding the bag and really increases the uncertainty around around premiums for next year, for sure. Where does that stand? When might that case be resolved or referred? It's unclear. The Trump administration gave some signals yesterday that they would continue to defend it, at least for this year. But it's a little bit like reading tea, tea leaves. The, the statements aren't that clear. And, and there, there are some other things that can be done in addition to this. The, the lawsuit is a, is a big issue. Another issue is the individual mandate. So mm-hmm. the individual mandate is on the books, and it's going to stay on the books until the law is, is repealed or changed. Um, but the Trump administration has signaled that it's not likely to enforce those penalties very uh, vigorously, which could lead people to not purchase health insurance because they feel like they're not really going to be penalized, even though there's officially a penalty on the And that would be through... The IRS, presumably? Right, through the IRS. Yeah, so the IRS would, you know, have, right now, you know, they've been given guidance that they don't have to really look into it if someone doesn't provide documentation that they're insured. And so that would lead to less 
enforcement of the individual mandate penalty than might have been initially envisioned. Do we have any sense whether people are not reporting that they have health care and therefore theoretically are subject to the penalty, but are taking their chances? You know, I'm, that's a good question. I think we'll have to wait and see after people file their returns what they've done. Other measures that either the administration has take or is contemplating short of changing the law? Right. So one thing that can be done is is how, how is the law marketed? So one of the issues with the, the, Obama, the Obama administration invested a lot in trying to market the Affordable Care Act to people to try to um, persuade people to enroll in health insurance coverage. Um, uh, the Trump administration already, we know, uh, it, uh, eliminated marketing in the week before the close of the open enrollment period, uh, which probably reduced the number of people who newly enrolled for the 2017 plan year. Um, and so, you know, now the plan year is closed, but come November, the same kind of decisions are going to be have to, the administration will have to make similar decisions. Are we going to market this law? Are we going to try to get people to enroll or not? And that will have implications. Um, and insurance companies have to set premiums. They have to guess what the administration is going to do. So that, you know, the signal that was sent by not marketing it mm-hmm. at the end of last open enrollment period could spook insurance companies who are maybe then concerned that there won't be a, a marketing strategy for the plan. So it's kind of this tension between supporting the existing law sabotaging it, letting the status quo carry on. That's right. That's right. There's just a lot of unresolved dynamics here. There are, exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, you know, there, there's been mixed signals, too, from the administration. So uh, they did put out a regulation that did try to strengthen some parts of the law for insurers. So one of the things insurance companies had been concerned about was this so-called special enrollment period where mm-hmm. people can enroll outside of the open enrollment period. And there was a feeling that that was maybe being abused or overused um, and that sick people were, were people were waiting and trying to get in during the special enrollment period once they got sick. Um, and so the, the Trump administration is issued some guidelines or regulations that would tighten that special enrollment period so that it's harder to get in um, during special enrollment periods. So that is, that is something that um, would make insurance companies happy, I think. Uh, but there's a mix of things that are going on right now that they have to adjust to. We've heard a, a lot about the fragility of the exchanges. How fragile are they at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think they're fragile. I think that uh, there were challenges even before mm-hmm. uh, the Trump administration took office, but now this added uncertainty of whether the individual mandate is going to be enforced, whether the, the law is going to be marketed, whether the law is going to exist, whether there's going to be major changes in the in the individual market, um, that's really could be concerning for insurance companies. And I can see, you know, could foresee insurance companies not wanting to take chances, you know, either exiting or dramatically increasing their premiums uh, as a hedge against the uncertainty that they're facing right now. One of the big concerns when uh, the ACA was being debated is that healthcare inflation had gotten out of control. I mean, for years and years, it has been well above the CPI. It seems to have narrowed Somewhat. I mean, I think uh, when the ACA took effect, it was in the six to eight percent range versus two to three on normal on on, on consumer inflation. Uh, that gap has narrowed in the ensuing years. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that the ACA has at least achieved that one goal, or is on on the path to getting to reining in healthcare costs? Right. So, so there was a narrowing or a reduction in healthcare cost growth from the period of about. 2009 to 2013. And since 2013, we've seen an uptick, um, but we haven't yet gotten back to the 6 to 8% range that you mentioned before. Now, what is the reason for this narrowing that we saw between 2009 to 2013? So, mm-hmm. you know, that has that did coincide with the signing of the Affordable Care Act. Um, so 
possibly that has something to do with it, but there are a lot of other hypotheses, um, and that really hasn't fully been answered yet in the literature. You know, some other things include the Great Recession and, you know, people's lower demand for health care because of lower incomes or you know, unemployment during that time period. Um, some expensive pharmaceuticals came off patent during that time period, which may have reduced healthcare cost growth. Also, we saw during this time period a rise in high deductible health plans, um, which perhaps led people to consume less care because they faced a higher um, deductible. So there are a bunch of bunch of different factors that may have contributed. It's not clear that it was all the Affordable Care Act. I haven't advertised this as another way to ask questions, but I did get a direct message via Twitter oh. about this call from one of our donors, Morgan. She says, ask how they can include pre-existing conditions and cover most people and keep costs affordable. Well, that's the challenge. I mean, I think that's a good question. It's the fundamental challenge. Um, you know, the, the, the parts of the law that people don't like, the individual mandate and the higher premiums are directly related to the parts that people do like, which is um, no longer being able to deny coverage or charge higher premiums for people with pre-existing conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're uh, policymakers are trying to do is figure out how do we balance both of those things, and it's a tough needle to thread. Um, I don't think we fully have the answers to that question. Yeah, I think my response is uh, that is that is the crux of the matter. Right. <laughs> Trying to have our cake eat it too. Exactly. In a, in a sense. Yeah. One of the things that uh, we've heard a bit more from certain states is uh, the possibility of a single-payer system. I wonder if that's regaining traction. Maybe first just explain what the single-payer system might be and maybe talk a little bit about different states considering it, California in particular. Right. So a single-payer is when there's one entity that's paying for health care. Um, and usually it would be a state or the nation as a whole that's paying for all the health care, uh, not necessarily for all, but it's paying for the majority of the health care of the people living in that in that state. Um, and it's interesting that when the American Health Care Act, which is the Republican bill that was uh, tabled on March 24th, when that collapsed, what we saw in the news was, you know, people raising the idea of a single-payer health system, again, as a possible way forward. Um, you know, this is perhaps one of the few ways that we could achieve universal coverage in the United States because, you know, everyone would have coverage. Um, that's kind of the goal of a single-payer system. I don't really see the Congress right now moving in that direction. Um, although it's interesting that that could be done in a more conservative way. So the sort of Bernie Sanders style single payer has a very high actuarial value, which is uh, economic speak for it pays for a large share of people's mm-hmm, health care mm-hmm. costs. You could, in fact, and, and, and Dana Goldman and Kip Agopian have come up with a plan um, that would uh, involve a single payer system with, with very high deductibles, particularly for higher income people. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of keeps with some of the conservative principles of people taking more responsibility, but yet it would create this safety net. So there are ways to do it, but I don't necessarily see that happening uh, with the Republican Congress right now. You don't see it happening at a federal level? Not at a federal level. Would, what about at a state level? Would there be advantages to it? It's possible at, at a state level. that Some states have um, proposed that. So California is one, Colorado, Vermont, Oregon, it hasn't, you know, in those two, two of those states, Vermont and Colorado, the single payer idea was raised and then it kind of died. Um, so there, there are some real questions as to whether a state could implement this on their own. You know, one of the issues is that so much of healthcare right now is supported by the federal government in various different ways that for a state to take ownership and to institute a single payer model 
are they going to then lose out on some of the federal benefit that the federal government provides for health care um, mm-hmm. if they take a single payer on on their own? And I think that's a tension that, that is difficult to resolve. Are there any proposals that could provide low-income people affordable health care and not affect the deficit? It's, that's a really challenging issue. So I think one of the things that you're getting at is that to, is one of the ways that the Affordable Care Act ended up insuring more people was by providing subsidies or tax credits to lower-income people and by expanding Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's relatively easy to provide health coverage for people if you're willing to pay a lot of money to do so. Um, and, and that's the challenge for society is how do we do this without breaking the bank? There is one opportunity that's kind of at this point untapped, which is we actually, one of the ways in which the federal government subsidizes health care is that it provides an advantage for people who get their insurance through their employer. Mm-hmm. And that spending that the employer makes towards health care is not subject to taxes, income or payroll taxes. And that ends up creating a significant tax advantage. It's an untaxed benefit. It's an untaxed benefit. Uh-huh. Exactly. And it's about the CBO has estimated that it's on the order of $260, $270 billion a year. In lost tax revenue. In lost tax revenue. Um, so, our, you know, one proposal would be to eliminate or reduce the employer tax advantage and then redirect some of that money to subsidizing lower income people who are less likely to be insured. What percentage of people currently get their insurance, health insurance? Their employer. That's the major source of health coverage in the United States. So it's about 155 million people um, getting coverage through their employer. So, you know, 50% at least of the population. Has that proportion gone up since the ACA took effect? It's remained roughly constant. So there was concern when the ACA was signed that it would lead to people dropping employer coverage because of the newly created tax credits on the exchanges and the Medicaid expansion. That didn't happen. Um, it's remained relatively stable. So squeezing that that benefit or taxing that benefit, everyone's paychecks would shrink, presumably, because they would suddenly be paying. They'd be paying they'd be, taxes. Exactly, and that is so. It's interesting. The ACA did actually sort of begin to marginally chip away at that tax advantage by instituting the so-called Cadillac tax, which is a, a tax on high-premium health insurance plans, and that would have only affected a minority of plans because it really only hits if plans are extremely expensive. Um, but that provision, that Cadillac tax, as you know, is uh, quite unpopular. It was delayed. The American Health Care Act will delay it, would have delayed it further if it were to pass. So there's not a lot of support for uh, chipping away at that tax benefit currently. Let's take our first caller. I think we have Karen on the line. When you talked about an all-payer, I'm sorry, a single-payer, I wonder if you could also comment on the all-payer model approach. So it's not single-payer because it's Medicaid, Medicare, and commercial insurers, but it goes into one pot from which there's a system for all residents of the state, and that's what Vermont is pursuing. Could you comment on that and whether it will achieve, as you see it, the goals of moderating costs, improving health, Um, and its applicability to other states? Yes, sure. Um, I mean, that's an interesting approach. It it does, you know, uh, create some opportunities, I think, and one is that it provides more, um, you know, one of the issues about why healthcare is expensive is pricing, and by having an all-payer system, I think it allows the state government more influence on on provider reimbursement and pricing. So, to that degree, it may um, lead to lower prices overall, um, but I think we sort of need to learn from the experience of Vermont to figure out exactly how that goes. Karen, did you have any views yourself on that point? Oh, well, 
Uh, I certainly do, and have <laughs> been involved in that effort. Uh, a founding member of the Green Mountain Care Board that that regulates, evaluates, and innovates that very system in Vermont. But I think what's so exciting is that this all-payer model agreement was signed in October and will go forward for five years. That has uh, growth caps in terms of the spending, but also, most importantly, has um, outcome measures that have to do with paying for value, not volume, and sort of goes along with the direction now of switching from fee-for-service more towards um, outcomes that are really based on does anybody actually have better health. So I think these are important innovations that are now in an agreement, and it would be really good for people to pay attention to that, and not so much this all uh, the single payer thing as much as the other side of the equation is what do you get? Is there a system? And that's what I think Vermont is doing uh, that's so innovative and helpful in terms of achieving those twin goals. Something we, we probably should cover is that uh, the insurers are currently, well, I, I, I presume they're currently designing and pricing their, their 2018 products. You alluded to this earlier for, their, for state approval, which has to happen this summer. Is that right? That's right. So the deadline uh, is June 21st. Oh. So there are a lot of uncertainties that, you know, they're trying to deal with as they set these these premium prices, you know, anticipating what is the federal government going to do in terms of enforcing the mandate? What is the federal government going to do in terms of marketing? How is the federal government going to address the cost-sharing reduction lawsuit? Um, all of those things need to um, are going to be important for insurers' pricing decisions. And and I suppose not just pricing decisions, but whether to stay in or for not. For sure, yeah, yeah. And we've already seen some insurance companies announcing that they're going to pull back. Um, so there was this article in the Wall Street Journal the other day about um, two major players, Aetna and well, Wellmark, I think. Mm-hmm. Wellmark, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. Right. They were uh, you know, not going to participate in Iowa's health insurance exchanges in the coming year because of this uh, uncertainty issue. And that leaves Iowa a bit thin. That's right. I think some of the markets in Iowa will maybe not have any insurers offering in the health insurance exchanges. Now, this is a pretty small market. Um, you know, as we talked about, 155 million people are insured through their employers. That doesn't really that, – so that those people aren't affected by these kinds of decisions. Right. Within the individual market, there are about 20 million people um, and a little more than half of those 20 million people are on the health insurance exchanges. So when we're talking about the health insurance change exchanges, we're really talking about 12 million or so people nationwide. I think we have Joe on the line. If we could patch Joe in. Hi. Um, hey. Morning. One, one topic you haven't. I mean, this is like you know, this is the the great conundrum of our of our time, and it's getting bigger, and we all recognize that. Uh, one thing you haven't commented on, and I. Yes, we're very sensitive here in California. Is the potential impact of healthcare reform on Medicaid state grants and the potential shift of federal funding to a block Medicaid grant, which would give the politicians um, likely more control over? Um, how much money goes to a state depending on a variety of things that may be on their mind in any given year. I view that as a um, as a, a significant problem down the road. It would likely affect California more than most, um, and it would be a slow withdrawal, in essence, of the federal government if they chose to do so. What are your views on that? Just to 
expound upon that statement, the, the block grant of the per capita cap is a proposal that was included in the American Healthcare Act. Um, under current law, the way Medicaid spending is reimbursed is it's jointly that it's, it's shared. A percentage is paid for by the federal government and a percentage is paid for by the state. Um, for people who are eligible previous, prior to the ACA, the federal government pays somewhere between 50 and 75% of the cost. For those who became newly eligible as a result of the ACA, the federal government will pay for 90% of the cost in perpetuity. At least that's the plan according to the ACA. What um, the American Health Care Act would have done, it, was, would have, it would have converted Medicaid to a block grant or a per capita cap. Basically, that gives the state a sum of money to cover the Medicaid population, and that sum is indexed over time to inflation, but not necessarily health care cost growth. And so over time, it drives a wedge between, you know, if healthcare cost continues to outpace inflation, which it did even in, you know, that 2009 to 2013 timeframe, but more, you know, it's, it's crept up in the past couple of years. Um, that means that over time, the state will be on the hook for a greater great, and greater share of spending if they cover the same population and, and costs continue to rise at the same rate. On top of that, uh, most of these block grant and per capita cap, cap proposals would reduce the amount of funding that's available for the expansion population, if not eliminating it entirely. And so that means the states that have expanded their programs would face a bigger shortfall than they had anticipated because they wouldn't be getting this 90% match anymore. So, so Joe is right that that would be a burden on state budgets, and states would have to figure out how to address that, uh, whether to cut eligibility, whether to cut benefits in the Medicaid program, institute work requirements, do something else to try to reel in costs in the face of Fewer and fewer federal dollars over time. Is this still a a live contemplated in the in the new incarnations of HCA? Yes, it 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 keeps coming up and it has been contemplated. I think it is one of the places where you know it seems like that is a difficult sell because state governments don't want to be on the hook for this, and it's mm-hmm. one of the big reasons that CBO estimated such a massive decline in health insurance with the uh, American Health Care Act. So I could see it as something coming out. It, it, the, this block grant was not in Tom Price's proposal, Empowering Patients First. No, sorry, the Empowering Patients First Act, which was Tom Price's mm-hmm. health reform proposal. Um, but right now it's still in ACA. Joe, you have a follow-up or a comment? Yeah, I do. Um, and it's kind of a related topic, but, it, you know, there are, there are three or four major players at the table, one of which is the insurance industry. And... Um, You'll allow me a little inside baseball for a second since the season has just started. Um, sure. The insurance companies had a private understanding with the Obama administration regarding guardrails and that since no one knew how the ACA was really going to turn out, um, if the costs exceeded um, a certain percentage in their medical loss ratio, there would be a way to reimburse the insurance companies for that. Conversely, if their profits exceeded a certain standard, they would give back in a variety of ways to the people they were covering. The costs so dramatically exceeded the uh, revenues that um, they basically turned in a bill to the government and the bill and the government simply ignored it. Uh, and then ultimately, I think settled at 15 cents on the dollar or something. That dis- that really had a, m- a major adverse impact on the insurance company's willingness to uh, play a- going forward in this because the losses they were incurring were were huge. 
they had had their arms twisted to kind of go along with the program by the Obama administration. And when they they got um, screamed uh, in terms of their losses, they just said, we have a responsibility to our shores. We just can't keep doing this. So I think the guardrail concept is a legitimate one, um, maybe politically difficult. But, but um, you know, Chrissy, have you... I assume you're familiar with all this, and I wonder if you have any views going forward as to ways to get not only individuals into the pool, but to get the the various carriers into the pool as well. Yes, what, right. So, so that is an issue. Those guardrails. I think the risk corridor program is is what you're talking about, and um, and yeah, I did read something this morning about potentially some lawsuits related to that. So I don't know if that's going to uh, um, if if eventually that might get paid through a lawsuit. But there are some other proposals, and interestingly, in the American Health Care Act, one of the things that was contemplated was adding reinsurance. So um, risk corridors, which Joe brought up, were one of the so-called three R's, which were mechanisms designed to stabilize the individual market, um, and reinsurance was a second one of those three R's. And that was in, basically reinsurance um, is, pays for high-cost claims out of uh, federal tax dollars as opposed to the insurance company's premium collection, and it protects the insurance company um, and ultimately the consumer from somebody who has a massively high bill, and that then um, raises premiums or leads to losses. Um, and so reinsurance was actually introduced back into the, the affordable, sorry, the American Health Care Act. Mm-hmm. Um, more recently, since the, that initially collapsed, there was a discussion about um, high-risk pools, which achieve a similar goal, and in fact, there was a discussion of something called an invisible high-risk pool, which is uh, basically reinsurance by another name. So this seems to be gaining some traction, and that might be a way to stabilize the market. It does require a federal investment, though, um, to pay for people who have unusually high medical bills within the insurance plan. Uh, I believe we have Eric on the line. My my question is fairly straightforward. If there's a Provision for the poor or the economically disadvantaged, why not a free market solution to health care? Can, can I ask you to expound upon that a little bit? There's some laws that would allow, you know, you couldn't just uh, decline somebody for application because of a pre-existing condition. Uh, you made some type of uh, economic provisions uh, uh, for those that are, are, are not earning enough money to afford health care, some type of income credit that would allow them to, to purchase the health care of their choice. If you, you if you took care of the poor and the economically disadvantaged, well, why not a free market solution to health care? So, I mean, the ACA was actually trying to achieve that. You know, the uh, idea of the health insurance exchanges, they are in some ways a free market in that you have um, health insurance, you know, private health insurance plans competing with one another on the market. I think the issue, and and it does do exactly what you said in that it provides tax credits to lower income individuals, and it also imposes that one rule, which is that you can't deny coverage based on pre-existing conditions. I think one of the challenges with that kind of setup, healthy people don't want to enroll because they don't see an advantage to enrolling now and paying the premium when they could wait until they get sick and enroll because there's no longer a provision that would preclude insurance companies from denying coverage to someone who is ill. Um, And so that's where we get this adverse selection, the premium escalation, and that's where other inducements or uh, maybe not inducements, but penalties like the individual mandate kind of come into play to try to bring healthier people into the risk pool. Any follow-up, Eric? It it just seems to me that... uh, before the ACA, or actually before World War II, I mean, healthcare was a cash and carry enterprise, and 
it's it's hard to say that somebody I know plenty of people that don't want to spend a lot of money on health care and just want catastrophic coverage. And I can't find a good argument why they shouldn't be allowed to do that. Right. I mean, I think that gets into the question of what is society's role in providing health care for, for the poor or for people who can't afford it. It, it is so expensive. Um, and, you know, while you have someone who may want catastrophic coverage, you have another person who has who's facing unaffordable health care bills. And how do we balance that as a society? Um, and that's not a question that we can answer with analytics or, you know, the, it, and I think that's actually one of the reasons why Congress is having trouble coming up with a replacement policy, because there are fundamentally different views on society's role in dealing with that situation, whether we should have a safety net that covers everyone and that it's funded through transfers, either through the tax system or through risk pooling mechanisms, or whether we should have a more free market system where some people may find themselves priced out of the market. I see Joe is back with another question. Hi, Chrissy. One other follow-up. Because you were so involved in the macroeconomic model that we created to try to price uh, risk, how you get people into the pool, uh, what would make it economically interesting for people to stay out of it. And I had the impression that the government did not necessarily follow all of our recommendations, not that we had the magic ball, but we probably had the best model going. Um, Looking forward, um, without um, violating any confidences of discussions you may have ongoing, do you see a role for that uh, in assisting the government in uh, redeveloping a pricing model that might um, fairly balance these various interests we've been talking about today? Yes, so I do. I think that there is an important role for this kind of modeling that we're doing. So, so our model... Uh, estimates not only premium prices, but also the number of people covered, um, total cost to the federal government, um, total cost to consumers in terms of their out-of-pocket spending. And I think it is important because, as we've seen, the CBO score, the way that the CBO, uh, they use a similar model, and the way they score legislation is so important to the fate of that legislation that there's a lot of demand for the tool that we've developed to help policymakers and uh, others understand what kind of score might be expected for different types of legislation. So I think there is a role for us going forward, and we're really happy that we have this tool that we can bring to bear to answer these important questions. We are just about the end of our time, which is too bad, because I think with just a few more minutes, we could have this whole thing solved. Right. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Chrissy, for your time and insights. Thanks to our Policy Circle and Rand Next members and friends for joining us on this call, and for those who called in with uh, good questions and insights. If you'd like more information on upcoming Policy Circle events or to listen to a podcast, please visit our website, RAND.org, or contact us directly at policy underscore circle at RAND.org. This concludes our call. Thanks for participating, and have a great day. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.